In the deep dark, the Aslan are moving, but there is a darker power. There is something behind the claw. Welcome to the 22nd episode of the Behind the Claw podcast, a show for fans of the classic traveller RPG. I'm Felbrick Napoleon Herriot. And let's start the show by taking a look in the email vault. Hmm, just a couple of emails today. Stefan has got in touch to say that he's enjoying the show and that it's been 22 years since he played Traveller. Now that makes me feel old. He's thinking that he might give the Mongoose Traveller version 2 a try when it comes out. Well, based on my reading of the first set of Mongoose Traveller, I think that's definitely worth a look. Thanks for getting in touch, Stefan. The second email is from Robert, who runs the Ancient Faith in the Far Future blog that I mentioned in the last show. It seems we formed a kind of appreciation society for each other. Cool beans. And as he wrote me, I'll drop his blog's address again. It is ancientfarfuture.blogspot.com. Thanks for getting in touch, folks. I do appreciate it. I have no idea. So, computer, what can you tell me about this place? This is my galaxy, where I tell you about a planet in my Tassesso subsector. A map and planetary UPPs are available on the podcast's website at behindtheclaw.blogspot.co.uk. Rasmabi is a water world with a mostly breathable atmosphere. Its population is in the region of 10 million strong, and they're eager to trade with independent traders. This trade usually, however, is limited to barter, as the usage of credits is limited to the starport. The orbital starport offers only unrefined fuels and is limited in its trade options. Surface landing is limited to smaller shuttles or ships capable of floating on water. Life for the population of Rasmabi is a constant fight to stay afloat. The majority of the population live upon floating pumice islands that have to be constantly renewed with fresh pumice as the older stuff becomes waterlogged and sinks. The islands are usually limited in size and normally support no more than a few thousand individuals. There are a few exceptions to this, with the islands of Thantai and Thantiana being the notable exceptions, with populations into the 20,000s. Each island is effectively a separate nation, but apart from a few exceptions, they tend to follow the same set of fairly restrictive laws and operate as independent kingdoms. Relatively few of the islands are able to cope with the weight of a shuttlecraft landing on them, so visitors should only land on designated landing spots and then only with permission. Some open spaces which look amenable to shuttle landings are designed for other purposes and cannot sustain the vehicle's weight. Landing in the wrong place could easily demolish that part of the island and lose the ship that landed. A ring of underwater volcanoes around the planet's equator constantly erupt, sending pumice to the surface. The population farm this supply, and thus many of the cities maintain their position close to this source of pumice. This proximity has led to competition and even small wars in order to secure a good supply of the pumice that they need to renew the rafts on which the cities float. The majority of the food eaten by the populace takes the form of compressed algae blocks, 
which are easily created from the huge algae blooms that constantly appear in the heated waters of the equator. Various fish provide for delicacies, as these have to be farmed far to the north or south of the equator. Both poles of the planet appear to have ice caps, but these are not solid and are formed of floating pumice growlers that have iced over in the frigid air. Travellers are warned away from the poles, as there are no landing sites, and the air is less amenable to breathing as it tends to collect the more toxic emanations of the volcanoes. No, no, no way. The way I heard it is that he was shipping arms, guns, you know, taking them straight in, under the navvy's nose. It's time for another story seed. This seed is designed for a mercenary unit, but could also work for a militarised party. Our heroes are hired by Deanna Corps for a one-day job. Of course, there may be travel times to and from the job, but the actual work for the mercenaries should be a single day. Deanna has an operation on the planet Thengu that is situated a few miles from the starport. The planet is generally at a lower tech level than the average in the Imperium, and some recent technical innovations have stirred up the populace into revolt. Deanna want to withdraw their valuable machinery from the planet, lest it be pillaged or destroyed. The on-site security at the Deanna operation have so far kept the facility safe, but if the mob turn against the company, then it's likely that the valuable computer manufacturing facility will be lost. Rather than risk that, Deanna want the equipment removed to the starport for lifting off-world. They suspect that there may be blood involved, and so have hired mercenaries to do the job and to give themselves some plausible deniability. The job, in short, is to drop in to the starport, break through the protesters to the Deanna facility, load up the equipment and get it back to the starport and off-planet. The PCs will be dropped into the starport with 20 trucks and an armoured car, a convoy big enough to carry back all of the valuable equipment and personnel from the Deanna facility. One truck is also carrying a portable crane which can be used for the larger equipment. The starport exits are surrounded by protesters and a couple of starships have been burned out in the attacks and lie burning on the starport floor. The security are keeping a low profile. For the PCs, the list of what can go wrong is quite extensive and gives you a lot to pick from. Petrol bombs or the local equivalent will be thrown, possibly causing losses. Vehicles can break down, bridges could be sabotaged, protesters will be everywhere and local police and militia are unreliable at best and actively aggressive at worst. When the PCs reach the factory facility, they might be under attack or totally disorganised. Perhaps the local employees have all walked off-site, leaving just a manager. So who's going to load the trucks? Once they are loaded, how can they get themselves back to the starport without losing any of the equipment or more trucks? Then, when they get to the starport, perhaps the protesters have broken in at that point. Is the fuel depot in danger? Can the shuttles be fuelled? Is a protester broadcasting on the starport channel and has the tower control room been taken over? Is the shuttle due to lift them off on fire? And can they requisition another? This seed is ripe for action and adventure and could easily stretch into a multi-session game. Add an antagonist in the form of a militia leader NPC into the mix that does not want the expensive equipment to get off planet 
and you have a particular foe that can give the PCs someone to hate and to defeat. No, sir, you may not dock here. What the hell? I just made three jumps to get here. Without Permit 7C, you may not dock. Now move out to the holding line at 6,000 kilometres. This is the Rules Talk section, where I take a look at some aspect of the classic traveller rules or canon. Evan dropped me an email back in September and asked about skills, more specifically, teaching skills. He asked if a PC can teach skills, and if so, how? I have to admit, this has never been a thing in my games, so this could be interesting. Now, Book 1 from 1981 says there are experience rules in Book 2. In fact, there's a whole section that I've been ignoring or simply missing forever. And boy, it turns out to be quite a doozy. If your character wants to raise a skill by one point, or to gain a one-point skill, a brand new skill that is, it's going to take four years of study and practice. But you only get that if your character can stay on the course. They might get bored or distracted before finishing the course. You simply roll two dice and score eight plus to stay the duration of the course. Failure means that your character gives up after a year. Success means that you gain that one point of skill improvement. Alternatively, if your education stat is lower than your intelligence, you can take a general education correspondence course for four years, and at the end, you can add up to six points to your education stat, and this will cost you 50 credits a week. Another alternative is to take a four-year break from adventuring and spend it in study to automatically gain a single skill at level two. That'll cost you 70,000 credits, though. And there is another alternative that brings almost immediate gains, albeit temporarily. If your character is training for two skills simultaneously for four years and passes the 8-plus roll to stay the course, you immediately gain a temporary plus one to your skill that lasts for the four years of the course, but then it would disappear, unless you enter another four-year follow-up course after which it would become permanent. So in this case, in order to gain that immediate plus one, you'd have to spend eight years with your PC in training. I'm not sure how you could play that. Perhaps if your campaign was based around a training college, you could continue training and adventuring. And that seems about it for the core rules. Pretty much unsatisfactory. That's not to say I don't like it. I do. It fits in with the acquisition of skills through character generation, where skills are rare and wonderful things. I think it'll prove unsatisfactory to anyone who wants character to progress during their play. If you're looking for some kind of experience system that allows you to improve stats or to buy skills, you just won't find it here. Traveller just isn't one of those systems. Sending your character away for four years is possible, but how is that satisfying? It's not going to satisfy the itch for a power gain. Not at all, I would suggest. Perhaps your characters could be a part of some advanced training scheme that involves adventuring for a while and then four years back in the academy before emerging into adventure mode again. But I don't see how that's going to be too much fun. Sure, you gain a skill with the click of your fingers, but four years have passed, and those ageing effects are going to start affecting you soon. Remembering that a whole week passes with every jump, an adventurer tends to get old quickly, 
without spending decades in further education. Even if your character does do the correspondence course, it won't relieve the power-craving itch. I've been playing for years without bothering with any of these mechanisms, or any substitute for that matter. But I would be interested to hear from anyone who has used this system, or even devised an alternative of their own. If you have, drop me a line, tell me what you did and how it worked out for you. Did you hear that? What the hell do you think it is? Is it dangerous? This is the Creature Catalogue, where I tell you about one of the alien creatures that can be found in and around the Imperium. The Sia Anna Pomartha, also known as the Pomartha, is an insectoid alien that makes its home on the world of Jellicoe's, where its discovery has had a divisive effect on the population. The reason it's so divisive is the animal's anthropomorphic appearance, which people either find appealing or detestable. When describing the poor Martha, it is best to start with the image of a man in your head and describe the differences. It's bipedal, 12 inches tall, pink in colour, with a hard chitinous skin. It has binocular, pit-type eyes. It has ridges on its head that approximate the positions of nose and ears. Its small mouth, however, is in its belly. Its appendages end in two-pronged claws rather than hands or feet. Its movement is relatively slow, but its gait, when on flat ground, is very human-like. It is omnivorous, eating other insects as well as well-rotted fruit that litter the arboreal forests of its home. When the planet was first colonised, Pomortha were known as the woodsmen by the locals as they looked like little men living in the woods. There were also stories of them saving the lost by leading them out of these woods, and even of raising human children. More modern eyes treat these simply as local myth and fairy, as there are no confirmed or documented cases. Some segments of the population have taken to bringing the poor Martha into their home as pets, keeping them in glass containers. Others have them wandering freely around their homes. Children even dress them up, treating them rather like living dolls. They're not dangerous, having no sting or bite capable of hurting humans. And they're not poisonous to eat, although they are unpleasant tasting. Society on Jellicoe has been split over the Pormortha, creating a couple of significant factions. The most notable are the smallest group. These are a religious cult that revere and honour all Pormortha. They are activists and often violent in protecting the habitat and lives of poor Martha. The second group are those that are merchandising the poor Martha in every way conceivable, including capturing of live specimens and shipping them off-planet to foreign markets. As you might expect, this brings them into constant clashes with those wanting to protect and cherish the creatures. Protest marches, political rivalry, these are constant factors on the local news channels, and have to be taken into account when planning any public meeting. In the wild, Pomortha are normally independent and solitary, but when males meet they invariably fight, and this is called wrestling, as it appears to onlookers as if the two combatants have gripped each other's wrists in a match of strength. This impression is correct, as one or the other will usually have one limb snapped off. Once this happens, the loser is dismembered completely by the winner. An individual Pormartha normally lives for no longer than a single year on its homeworld, which is approximately three standard years, 
although once shipped off-planet, it has been noted that they often live for only a single Terran year. My God, sir, they've launched a missile. It's, it's tracking. Have they now? Don't fret, though. I've got something special to handle that. Lancelot, activate my special defensive feature. Evan emailed me a while back and suggested that mystery might be a good topic for discussion. So I thought I'd take up his suggestion and share my thoughts. So, what is mystery in an RPG? My thoughts are that mystery can be a driving force for a scenario, for a character, or even for a campaign. Usually the mystery takes the form of a question. What is this thing? Where are we? Where's that missing thing? Who's that? Who did that? How can we stop this? All of these questions can form the core of a scenario. I started my last campaign with a mystery that started with Who are we? Which was quickly followed by Where are we? And then where is everyone? And finally, what do we do next? In that example, the PCs woke out of a cold sleep with memory loss on a ship with no crew, and evidence that there'd been a fight on board. In my recently published scenario, The Experiments, the PCs knew who they were, but were asking, where are we? And how do we get out of here? So the mystery, especially if it's linked to the PCs' well-being, can be a great motivator to get them to buy into a scenario. After all, a farmer won't have any great driving force to leave his homestead. But if something or someone is threatening the homestead, he's immediately motivated to get involved. They'll want to protect their own. And the mystery is, who's the threat? Or where are they? Or how can we stop them? Mysteries do not have to be complex. You don't have to construct something along the lines of the Da Vinci Code. And in fact, I'd recommend against it. If your mystery presents to the PCs as a puzzle, with a single win condition and a one-time choice, it's not going to be fun for anyone. It's the death trap problem. If the PCs pull lever A, they pass through to the next level. If they pull lever B, they die. And that's the worst type of mystery. It means the only way to progress is to be absolutely sure that you have the right answer. If your puzzle means that the players have to decrypt something, and for whatever reason they can't do that, Perhaps they don't know they have to decrypt it, or the players don't have the math or pattern recognition skills needed. Then you'll have reached a dead end, and that's no fun for anyone. For me personally, I detest crossword puzzles. I just don't have the right skills to solve them. Present me with this kind of unsolvable puzzle in a game, and I'm going to lose interest. I'll soon have my mobile phone out and start playing Splendour. That's going to bring the whole session, the whole mood of everyone at the table down, as people get distracted. Instead, I suggest that if you want to have a mystery that needs to be solved, that you make it something that can be either brute-forced by multiple attempts, or indeed bypassed. Let the players find their fun in the multiple attempts, or by moving on to the next thing. By way of an example. The RPG Monster of the Week has a great mechanism. Each monster is a mystery that needs to be solved. You need to find out how to defeat it properly. Sure, you can skip the research, the puzzle, and simply beat the beast to a pulp. But the monster will be back next week, or the week after, and it will keep coming back until you find the special correct way to defeat it. That's the brute force method of solving the mystery. 
If players can bypass the puzzle but will get an additional benefit for solving it, that's a benefit. That can really G the players up. Finding clues in the gumshoe system does this. In that case, you're given the info you need, but if you dig a little deeper, you can get more info and a better end result. But enough of puzzles. Mystery at its core is the players and their PCs not knowing something. As a referee, you can tell the PCs that they don't know something and let them try and find out the answer. You don't even have to work out beforehand how they can find it out. Let the players dig around a little, and when they come up with a good resolution, just let that ride. It's improvisational, but it works. A trick I've used in the past is to block the first couple of obvious routes to the answer when the players try them out, but then allow anything more original or outrageous to work. That gives the players a feeling of pride in their accomplishments, but don't let them know you're doing that or you'll just deflate them. Anyway, I think I've blathered on rather too much about mystery or puzzles. If you have anything to add to the subject, by all means, do drop me a line. So I'm here. Why don't you tell me why you're cold? There's a spacer in the corner booth. Don't stare at him. I see him. Who is he? It's the guy on the news vids. Which news vids? There's thousands of channels. Crookwatch. Ah, This is the People of Interest segment, where I tell you about somebody who's got some kind of a reputation around the Imperium. The Snipe is the name used by various intelligence services across multiple planets for an assassin of extreme skill. There are many individuals that take the mantle of a killer for hire, but none demand the price nor the respect accorded to the Snipe. All that we know of the Snipe is based on rumour and a single leaked intelligent report that made it into the free press on Tesseso before being suppressed and withdrawn. According to the intelligence report, the Snipe has been responsible for a number of high-profile killings, including, but not limited to, a number of heads of state, an admiral, some Labour leaders, two mercenary company owners, a number of underworld kingpins and a scattering of religious cult leaders. Rumour attributes a lot more other deaths to his hand, but the majority of these can be dismissed as they are simply attribution in the absence of evidence. What we know of his operating procedures are deduced from attributed crime scenes. One interesting point of note is that the snipe does not make his kill in the same way each time. When he killed the president of Helene IV, he was a part of the crowd at a meet and greet and used a slow-acting contact poison. On Chirithasap, he killed a corporate CEO by sabotaging the grav plates of the CEO's yacht. On a passenger liner travelling between systems, he used a snub pistol to kill another CEO. Three presidential candidates on Sol 17 were taken out with a high-powered laser rifle while being driven to a debate. The point is that in each case, the snipe had very good intelligence and evidence suggests a long lead time for the preparation of each of these kills. It shows that he has carefully planned exit strategies, even when confined on a mid-jump starship. He's clever, patient, and very effective. The intelligence report on the snipe did propose some theories, all unconfirmed, on how someone might get in touch with the snipe. The writer obviously was looking for a way to get in touch with him in order to set a trap. The first theory was that he approaches possible clients and cannot himself be sought out. 
the second that a public coded advertisement might be used. This was a proposal with a low chance of success, as there were no clues as to which publications or what coded language should be used. The third, that you would need to know someone who already knows how to make the contact. This third suggestion was rated as most likely to succeed. However, it also noted that the perceived beneficiaries of previous attacks by the snipe have all claimed no knowledge of the snipe, and surveillance of them has not been able to confirm or deny this. The existence of the snipe became well known after one particular assassination which he must have been particularly proud of, as it's the only one at which he left a calling card. The victim, in this case, was a very unpopular dictator. The calling card was a huge banner that when it was unfolded, covered the entire front of the dictator's palace and said simply, The Snipe. To this day, no one has a solid theory on how such a large canvas was transported into one of the most heavily guarded locations and fitted into place on the front of the palace without any of the guards being alerted. The one idea or suggestion that all the guards were simply bribed do not hold water, as the dictator, who lived in constant fear of his life, also had a number of robotic point defence droids that overlooked the area where the banner appeared. Thanks for the trade, Tuchel. It was a pleasure doing business with you. So long, sucker. And so once again we've reached the end game. And as usual, if you have any thoughts, suggestions, questions, segment items or short stories, please send them in to me at behindtheclaw at Outlook. This podcast is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Its home on the web is at behindtheclaw.blogspot.co.uk. Music by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I'm your host, Felbrick Napoleon Herriot. Thanks for listening. Prepare for jump. <laughs>